welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Now, I know most of you are on summer vacation, and we as educators love that feeling of not knowing what day it is, right? But uh, weekends still matter. You know, a lot of great events happen on the weekends, and some of you, of course, have a spouse or a partner or a significant other who's not an educator. So uh, when they hit their weekend, you know, things kick up a notch still. So um, happy weekend, even though it is uh, the summer. Um, on the road this week, uh, the assessment and grading conference in Austin, Texas begins today and goes through Wednesday. And then I'll be in Colorado Springs this Thursday and Friday. A few quick announcements as we begin. Uh, upcoming events this fall, of course, the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training will be in Long Beach, California, September 21st and 22nd. I'll also be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. And of course, all the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website, and I have links in the show notes for them as well. The other conference, of course, is the Teach Better Conference that's happening October 14th and 15th in Akron, Ohio. Again, lots of great speakers lined up for that. And if you use the code SHIMMER22 to register for the conference, you'll receive a $25 discount on your registration. All right. Thanks for tuning in this week. Uh, big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And as I always say, a big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. Uh, this week, my guest is Goldie Mohammed. Goldie is the author of Cultivating Genius, an Equity Framework for Culturally and Historically Responsive Literacy. Get your notes app ready. Get your notepad ready. Because just like the Zaretta Hammond interview from last month, you're going to want to pay close attention to this conversation. In Assess That with Tom and Nat, Natalie Vardabasso returns, and we talk about how to assess 21st century competencies. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Goldie Mohammed is coming up, but first, don't at me. And I'm pretty sure you won't this week. Because I want to open this week by telling you how grateful I am to have friends who are truly more like family. One week ago, July 11th, we had just returned from a weekend camping trip with a large group of friends. Now, this has become an annual thing for us where we actually book the entire campground for three nights over a weekend. Now, it's not a massive campground. It's a campground of about 20 sites. It's in the Okanagan Valley. It's just outside a small town of Karameas. It's a pretty reasonable rate as well. The last year, we had 16 families attend. Now, we used to camp together all the time. We moved the dates this year. Didn't quite work for some. So this year, we only had about 10 families. But we're now convinced that this is going to be an annual thing. Now, the reason we rent the entire campground is primarily because we tend to be loud. I, I know that's not unique, but and I'm not saying we're, we're loud as in a Lord of the Flies kind of way, not chaos. But we are loud in that we are a lot of people. And one of the things that we love to do, and again, I know this is not unique, but one of the things we love to do, of course, is sit around the campfire and tell stories and laugh and, of course, sing along to music. And we don't want to disturb anybody. So when you're at you know campgrounds, sometimes you end up disturbing people inadvertently. You don't mean to, but it happens. And so renting the entire campground allows us the freedom to be as quiet or as loud as we want to. Now, when we sing songs around the campfire, no one's playing guitar. We don't, we don't do this sort of live. What we do is we, we play music off of a phone, like we, we, we play music. This, this activity of ours, playing music around the campfire, we've branded it Scottify, since it's typically my buddy Scott who will bring out his phone and his speaker. He'll log into his Spotify account and we'll kind of pass the phone around and, and each of us will take turns picking a song to play around the campfire, right? You pick a song that you remember reminiscing about or a modern song, you get some deep cuts, you get some popular songs, you get some classics. We hear it all and it's a ton of fun. And it's supposed to be a no judgment zone. Uh, when you pick your song, you're you know not supposed to be judged for the song. But in all honesty, listen, you put a group of friends together, there's going to be a little judgment. Let's just be honest about that, right? <laughs> That's just the way it goes. It's nothing malicious, nothing harmful. It's just one of those things. We tease each other every once in a while when we pick a song. But for the most part, it is a no judgment zone. We sing to the lyrics. We laugh. Uh, sometimes there's even dancing. Who knows, right? And uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a really, really fun scene. So Scott's Spotify became Scottify. That's where, where that name came from. Though I really do have to give credit to my other buddy, Darcy, uh, who actually came up with the idea of 
passing the phone around and playing different musics, uh, you know, music and, and then having an opportunity to change genres and all that. So it really does mix things up uh, quite a bit. Now, when he came up with the idea, um, he gave it a different name, but for the life of me, I can't remember uh, what he called it. But um, anyway, a few years ago, it was rebranded as Scottify. I, I really, I wish I could remember uh, the other name he gave it, but um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe one day it'll come to me. Who, who knows? Uh, anyway, so the weekend was 10 couples and uh, and some of the kids too as well, but but they're not really kids. They're adults. They're they're in university now. So it's all sort of an adult kind of, you know, place to be. There's no little, little kids anymore in our group. Uh, they're just, all of them are just great people. Um, I love hanging out with, there's not one person that was there that I don't just love hanging out with over a weekend. Uh, the majority of us have worked together. Um, some are now retired. It is just a fantastic group of people. But I want to spend a minute talking about what you might call my core group. Five couples. Husbands and wives. This core group is the group that sort of has me in a reflective space every so often. Mostly because we've moved back to Vancouver in 2014. And so we don't see them as much. You know, we travel together, we camp together, we spend weekends together. You know, it really is truly a magical group for whom I have so much gratitude. The husbands are tight, the wives are tight, the group of 10 is tight. It is just a special group of friends to be a part of. Now, in the busyness of my life with traveling and all that I do, it is really easy to let some of this slip a little bit. So when we do reconvene for these weekends, like this past one, I'm reminded of just how lucky I am to have a group of friends who really are more like family. Now, most of you will probably know that expression that your friends are people who know everything about you but like you anyway. <laughs> That's this group. We know each other. We really know each other. To the point, honestly, where sometimes it's a little annoying. And it's annoying because when you think you're being subtle, when you think you can get away with something, when you think you can kind of be a little bit coy or mask something, nope, no chance, not even close. It's everybody knows each other almost too well. But honestly, I, I wish this for everyone. Every time we drive home from these weekends, Monica and I reflect on how lucky we are to have such amazing friends. We used to see them all the time, right, when we lived in the same town. But after moving, it was really important for us to make the effort to maintain this connection because of how much it means to us. And so the effort to see them on weekends and travel together. And in August, we're going to Vegas together. And it's just, it's a group that really does kind of... Um, Stay tight and stay connected. I, I honestly hope you can relate to what I'm saying. I, I hope you have people in your life, your friends, who are every bit the family that your actual family is, right? I love that expression that your friends are God's way of apologizing for your family. <laughs> it's like when you think about sometimes in some families, um, I don't think any family is immune to the drama and the things that tend to go down. I hope you have friends like I do. Friends that you would trust with every single aspect of your life. Um, look, even if it's one person, even if it's one friend, I, I hope you have that. I wish that for you. It doesn't have to be a large group. Just someone or a group of people who are actually and authentically happy for you when good things happen. And people who will drop everything when something bad goes down and try to help, help in that situation. We've been friends for about 20 years. We've known each other's kids by and large since they were born. Some not so much because some are older. My kids are a little bit older, but, but you get what I mean, that we've known each other since we were holding our children in our arms. Um, honestly, the kids, the kids themselves are like cousins. They've just grown up with each other and been around each other because we've been around each other so much. My, my friends, honestly, are as big a flex as I have in my life, and it's just something that is really special to me. So as I open this week, uh, no rant, no provocation, no thought-provoking opening, no hypotheticals to contemplate, just an expression of gratitude. And I want to give a special shout out to just my friends like family, 
Scott and Lisa, Steve and Andrea, Darcy and Lori, Carlos and Sharon. Weekends like our last camping trip are just an incredible reminder to me, a reminder to us, of how lucky we are to have each other, both personally and professionally. You know, mo- most of the group are educators, so we have as much professional interaction as we do personal. The people we lean on, people we laugh with. Yeah, sometimes people we laugh at. <laughs> That's how a group of friends are, right? And just a group of friends that you grow old with. A group of people who are there. You tell the stories a thousand times and you laugh every single time because you were there. And it's fun to reminisce about all the different things we've experienced. And as you might expect, the the stories get better and better the longer ago they were. Kind of like the fish story, right? Uh, the stories get better as they age, if you will. I Look, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe I'm getting soft, right? (laughs) But I really do appreciate my friends. As I said before, and as many of you know, of course, I'm on the road a lot and, and we don't live in the same town anymore. So for me, these opportunities are even more special. And as I said, I hope, I hope this is in your life too. I wish this for you. I hope you have this in your life because honestly, I could not imagine my life without them. Thrilled to have Dr. Goldie Mohammed joining me this week. Goldie began her career as a middle school reading, ELA, and social studies teacher, but she's currently an associate professor of literacy, language, and culture at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She studies black historical excellence within educational communities with the goal of reframing uh, curriculum and instruction today. Her scholarship has appeared in leading academic journals and books. She's also received numerous national awards and is the author of the best-selling book, Cultivating Genius, an Equity Model for Culturally and Historically responsive literacy, which is going to be the focus of our conversation today. She has not just had an illustrious career so far, but she has had an impactful one, and there are absolutely no signs of her slowing down. So Goldie, I want to welcome you to the uh, Tom Schimmer podcast. Thank you, Tom. Such a pleasure to be here. Uh, great great to have you on. I've been trying, uh, listeners, full disclosure, I've been trying to get Goldie on the podcast for about a year, and she's incredibly busy, but has been gracious enough to join me today. So I'm really excited about it. I know she's on a tight schedule. So we're going to dive right into our topic today, uh, which is the book Cultivating Genius. So uh, not to hold you accountable for every word you wrote, but on page nine, Goldie, referring to the context, <laughs> I love it when people do that, right? Page nine, you said this, it's like, I don't remember what I did yesterday, never mind what I wrote on page nine. <laughs> four years ago. Yeah, right. But but anyway, having said all of that, uh, on page nine, mm-hmm. uh, you are referring to the context of the 1800s and how Black people in the United States face multiple attacks of oppression. And you talk about, you wrote that, quote, literacy was no longer just a set of skills to possess, but the instruments used to define their lives and the tools to advocate for their rights, end quote. So in essence, you say that literacy is much more than more, much more powerful than just acquiring the skill to read, but that literacy in, in terms of reading and writing are actually transformative acts. So help us understand that. How so? How are literacy and, and uh, reading and writing, how is literacy more than just the skill set and how is it transformative? Yeah. So, you know, I, I first started to, if I can go back to going into the research of African-American or Black literary societies in the 19th century, you know, I came across this rich legacy, this rich American history, this rich Black history. Uh, These literary societies were organized to come together to read, write, think, study mathematics, science, art, language, all these things. But they had abolitionist spirits. They were abolitionists. And so as they were sort of, you know, cultivating their learning, their education, which included reading and writing practices, I saw that they were doing something more than just skills. I mean, they were learning the skills, you know, things like uh, speaking and writing and communication and reading and things like that. But then they would take it and their literacies had greater purpose. Uh, they needed it for their lives. Literacy was connected literally to their lives um, in ways of 
of using language to define who they are, using writing to write out their truths and write out the, the things that, that were most urgent of their pens. Um, they use their literacies to teach themselves and others to cultivate their genius and also remind them of who they are and whose they are, their power. So literacy became like this source of empowerment um, in addition to skills, it became a source of knowing who I am in addition to skills. It became a source of changing the world around me in addition to skills. So it was like connected to all these greater pursuits in life. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I have to admit to being naive and ignorant to this notion of the literary societies that that developed. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about just how they were organized? How did people hear about them? How did they know? Like, how, how, how did that all sort of come about? Well, and you know, and I have to say, Tom, in many ways, so many of us didn't know about this part of history, because there was an agenda to erase it. You know, right. when I go back into other parts of archival history, I find things like the measuring rod of textbook selection, which was a guidebook for what types of curriculum is selected and rejected in U.S. public schools. And part of that commentary of that text, it said, do not put things like the genius history of Black literary societies. Do not teach children that. Teach only about... Uh, Black people being happy as slaves. That was the language of that text. So I want to first start with saying there was an intentional effort to erase Black genius. And you can argue that that still exists in many ways or across different spaces today. But when I look at these spaces, they, they were organized by African-American people who had some freedoms and liberties in the Northeast part of our country, right? cities like Boston, New York, Philadelphia. And one thing I know about Black people then and now is that when there is need for joy, a need for social change and advocacy and activism, we're going to do one thing. We're going to organize. We're going to come together. And so maybe it's just in us. Maybe it comes from the African diaspora. But that's what we did. We organized around literature and reading and text. And we knew that education was important and prominent. We knew that since, you know, for generations. And they organized around the one thing that they held of value, education. And they came together. It was sometimes memberships. Um, and they made it like formal, right? They didn't just come together like in a book club. But they, they had a preamble and a constitution. And they sort of outlined what we would call today like bylaws of membership. They had membership fees and their membership fees after they paid bills, um, it went to cultivating their books in their libraries. And they met in places like basements um, of buildings, churches, auditoriums, homes, anywhere they can get a space. You know, there were membership numbers of 10 to over 100. And the ways in which these um you know, organization spread and, you know, like things will spread when it's good. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it was through their literacy practices by speaking, you know, public addresses. They would say things like we need a literary society in every town because it would be the nucleus of our people. That was some of the language that was expressed, you know, eloquently in public addresses. It was spread with the inception of black newspapers and black print you know, before 1827, Black people didn't fully exist in the entirety of our lives in other newspapers. They just didn't post about our joy and our, our, our happenings. It was always like these deficit postings in other newspapers. So in 1827, a year before, you know, the first documented Black literary society, we started the Freedom's Journal. And so these literary societies spread there, pamphlets, writing, speaking, all sorts of ways to engage with one another um, and, the, and other communal spaces like anti-slavery societies and benevolent societies. There were all sorts of societies at this time. And, you know, they just spread the word when something is good and great for a people and for a society, you know, words spread. 
And then leaders would take up the charge and start a literary society in their space and in their space, both Black men and women. And it, it sort of just spread. It became uh, across different states and cities. It, it is a fascinating history to me. And, and certainly I, I appreciate your your. Uh, uh, you're mentioning that there wasn't a purposeful effort to erase that from history because again, so many, so many of us did not know that history and, but it makes perfect sense when you, when you sort of pull back the lens and, and think about how societies have evolved mm -hmm. around the literacy skills. You go back to the middle ages and the evolution of the, the written word and access for, for everyday people in becoming literate and therefore be, be becoming empowered in changing society. So it makes perfect sense. And just, just not knowing that now in the, in the book, you know, uh, Goldie, you use the term, uh, this is a term I've not heard before. And I, I was really drawn to it. The term historically responsive, as opposed to just culturally responsive, um, which, which is one again, that I've, I've not really heard that much before. So I think at this point, most listeners would understand culturally responsive, at least to a certain point, we've heard that term, it's familiar, we kind of have a, an understanding. But what do you mean by historically responsive literacy? Yeah, so historically responsive is like more of my take on the literature, the scholarship of okay. culturally relevant, culturally responsive. And we see this, right? We see scholars um, in their research, finding, you know, unique sort of intersections to the work or, you know, we, we see this with like culturally sustaining, cultural modeling, funds of knowledge, third space. There's a lot of cultural models out there that sort of fall within the lines of culturally relevant or culturally responsive pedagogy. But in my work, you know, as a historical researcher, I, I go back, I like to go back to the past in order to understand how to reshift things around or shift things around and rewrite, guide us in the present and in the future. And so going back into these literary societies, uh, and they left Tom like meticulous artifacts for us. It wasn't like it was just, I mean, we know there weren't just one literary society, but there also wasn't just one artifact, <laughs> you know, it was like <laughs> right. I would be beautifully drowning in the literature, like in, in what the ancestors left for us. And I felt like they were guiding me, you know, I would, I would read something and that would take me to another place and another place and another place. And um, as I was reading what they left for us, their poetry, their, their announcements, their speeches, their activities during literary societies, it was making me into a better teacher. And I said to myself, well, this sounds like, I, I felt like a model <laughs> coming along. Like it felt like I would read a, a lot on this area which spoke to identity in this area that spoke to social justice and this area that spoke to more traditional academics. So, you know, the process as a researcher, that's what I was discerning. I was sort of organizing you know, what I was reading and coming to understand. And I, I created a model. We created a model. I say the word we a lot because I think everything I do is with the ancestors, you know, right, right. and, and with so many other scholars who have put out such beautiful work. And so we created this model, um, of different pursuits for education, different pursuits for learning. And, you know, I added to the culturally responsive literature and made it historically responsive because if we follow these pursuits, the same five goals of education that the ancestors follow, in many ways we are being we're being responsive to history. We're yeah. going back in history. <laughs> <laughs> the way of innovating what we are doing today is weird to think about history as innovation, but yeah. in many ways it is. If you think about innovation as like forward thinking for moving us forward, right? Yeah. And so yeah. it's his, it's culturally responsive because it honors uh, the the previous scholarship and the thinking around the work of identity and cultural competence and academic success and social political consciousness and things like that. But it extends it by creating like a five-part framework 
in which teachers, yeah. practitioners, leaders, whomever can pick up and use. So that's the historical part because it, it stems from the genius of history. Right. I wonder, you know, as you were talking about the formality of the record keeping and how abundant the records were and, and the formality of the process, they had constitutions, they had memberships, they had all of that. Was there any indication as to why they were so formal? Here's what I'm thinking, Goldie, and I'm wondering about your perspective or if there's any historical record of this. I'm wondering if the formality around the literary societies had more to do with the, 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 the idea of we're taking this seriously. This is not just a hobby. This is a very important. So in the moment, we need to be formal about this or, and or, I suppose, was it that we need to make this formal so that there is a record so that as others try to actively erase the record, that there is an abundance of, of a record that says that this is what we were cultivating. A little bit of both. Was there any indication for you? Do you, do you know what I'm trying to get at Absolutely with this? Absolutely, I do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think about that question a lot, and I've come to these sort of understandings in my mind. Um, and I think some of these understandings are backed by evidence of, of history. First, I think that um, we have to understand, you know, Black folks, when they were stolen, Africans, yeah. from their land, you know, the first thing they stripped was their culture, their identity, their names, their language big parts of our culture. And so part of it is like, this had, this was the American culture. This is how you organize. This is how white folks mm -hmm. were organizing. Right. And for many people who had freedoms during that time, they were assimilating to that culture, you mm -hmm. know, and we see it even in like language and dress, but you know, in their minds, they may have been thinking like, what else am I, this is all I may know. So I think part of it is like, that's the culture of the time. And before they created their own spaces, they had a lot of, there were white abolitionists who were, you know, inviting them into their spaces and they were using that as a model. So they may have kind of used it as a model. Right. I also think that this idea of record, like putting my voice on record, when you read the opening lines of the 1827 first black newspaper, the Freedom's Journal, it says, we wish to plead our own cause for too long have others spoken for us. And, you know, part of establishing um, newspapers or organizations was to say, I am here. I have a voice. I don't want to just exist physically, but I want to leave my, my, my experience, my name, my, um, my advocacy in print. And print is permanent, you know, like writing is so permanent. So I think it was kind of a blend of all those things. A little bit of both, yeah, uh, or all of it. And, and certainly, um, you know, you talked about uh, history being innovative, but that is the stuff of legacy, right? That right. is what legacy is. It's the carrying forward of the historical impact and the, the monumental moments and experiences that we bring forward. Yeah. That really is the stuff that the, that the, the development of your framework on the shoulders of the literary societies is exactly the stuff that legacy is made of. So I, I love that. Um, in your equity framework for literacy, uh, you conceptualize four layers or goals, um, identity development, skill development, intellectual development, and criticality. So I want to save that fourth one for a moment, the criticality. Um, but can you walk us through the specifics of those uh, kind of first three in terms of the, your framework now that you talk about? So identity development, I think you've kind of talked about that, but just give us a, a synopsis of, of each of, of those, and then we'll get to criticality in a moment. Yeah, identity is just defining self. Who are you? Who are you not? Who do you desire to be? Um, my work of identity goes beyond just racial or cultural or gender identity um, or any other cultural identities, but it can be your personal identity, your personality, and your identity as a traveler, a writer, someone who likes to, you know, take things apart and put them back together. I want classrooms to be spaces to nurture and cultivate and sustain who students are. Um, the skills pertain to those proficiencies and those what we call like state standards, what we want children to be able to do and learn across specific content areas. 
Um, intellectualism is sort of like the skills put in action in the context of the world somehow. You know, we spend a lot of time with like skill development, but how am I supposed to use those skills? So what people, places, things, concepts, histories, current events, am I connecting the skills to? Um, so you can see how skills and intellect, they're very cognitive, um, but they play a role together. It sort of like takes the skills and put it in the context in the real world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, just going back to identity, what I was thinking of as you were talking about identity, is that um, is that ter in terms of my voice and expressing myself in terms of who I am? Or does my identity also cultivate in terms of what I consume? All of it. All of, All that of is it. Identity. Oh, yeah. okay. And it's right. also like how other people perceive you. Mm -hmm. your context, all of that helps to make sense of who you are. So, right, you know, right. it's a wide, all these pursuits are so vast and on mm -hmm. their own, but, you know, to sort of bring it down a little bit, I, I help teachers to understand how am I doing some identity work with every unit playing? You're not going to get to all the identities and all the manifestations mm -hmm. of identities for each mm -hmm. child, but the goal Right is to connect and, and make, you know, classroom spaces where I affirm or learn something about myself or other people. Right. Mm -hmm. So who am I? Develop my skill and now take that and put it into practice in the real world to, to take it and put it into action. So criticality, mm -hmm. uh, if that is the desirable goal, then how do we, and by we, I mean teachers, how do teachers continue to help develop that in our learners? What is criticality? Well, before we develop anything within our learners, we have to develop it within ourselves. And that includes okay. identity and skills too. You know, believe okay. it or not, I, I work with ELA teachers who hate writing. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> you have to cultivate your skills for writing and your love for writing before you teach it, right? And the same goes yeah. with identity. If I feel uncomfortable with myself, how am mm -hmm. I really going to help a child know themselves? Yeah. Um, but criticality is, it stems from critical theories. And, um, so it's more than just critical thinking. A lot of people hear criticality, they think critical thinking, but in my work, I call it big C critical <laughs> thinking, okay. critical thinking about power, justice, equity. So criticality is defined as the ability to name, understand, question, disrupt oppression or hurt pain and harm in the world. Uh, to work to to work to disrupt it in a way working toward a better humanity. So criticality is the social justice piece. It's the equity piece. It's the it's the piece that looks at things like inclusion, diversity, a representation, and um, hum humanizing things. Right? Uh, whether it is like crit a criticality topic can be like environmental justice. It, it can be you know helping children to. Um, disrupt negative self-talk. Like, I can't do this. I'm not a math person. You know, that's criticality because right. it's like you're disrupting your own power inside of you that is harming you in a way when you right. tell yourself right. those things. It's like a form of self-harm. But it mm -hmm. also can be like racism, sexism, anti-homophobia, you know, religious discrimination, ageism, anything that inflicts a form of harm. And so the goal for criticality is to connect it to the learning in the classroom and have students like name these problems and problem solve for the best, for the betterment of humanity overall. Right. You mentioned uh, the, the criticality comes out of critical theory. And I think uh, just for listeners who may not be familiar with the framework of, of critical theory, of course, I, I'm sure most people have heard of critical race theory, but for critical theory, if you could give just a quick sort of uh, definition or context around what is critical theory? Well, you know, theory, first people got to understand what is theory. Theory helps to explain phenomenon. It's not strategies. Right. It's not going to solve. We don't typically teach theories. We teach, we have instructional methods and pedagogies that are informed by multiple theories. And uh, what makes it critical is that it's some kind of examination of power, systemic, structural, power, oppression, um, inequities, justice. So when you get into those terms, those critical terms, let's just call them, that's what makes it a uh, critical theory. And so if you are trying to, let's just say, Tom, 
say, okay, students are not achieving. Why are students not achieving? A theory will help to explain that. Something like cognitive theory may say, well, they're not, they're not decoding language. But social cultural theory will say, well, there's too much distractions around the classroom. That's why they're not achieving. Critical theory will say, you know, how was the curriculum constructed? Was it constructed to reflect the literacies and liberations and identities of that child? It's going to look at the power structures, right? And so my model really takes up multiple theories um, and critical race theory like focuses on all of the power structures, but particularly when it comes to race and racism. So, you know, folks are struggling or they're just kind of like taking one thing of what they hear and they're not being scholars of their lives. You know, I don't care if you're a teacher, you will have a responsibility to seek truth and knowledge and not just yeah. listen to anything you hear if it's not right. the truth. Yeah, for sure. And and certainly, uh, is, it is my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, critical race theory was originally a, a legal framework to examine uh, the legalities of structures within the government and, and in our greater society. And of course, uh, every soundbite and, and uh, snippet on the news is, has spun critical race theory into uh, into a, a sort of a different thing and a different uh, thing altogether in some places and, and, and certainly gets misrepresented. Am I correct on that, that it was a legal framework? Yeah, absolutely. You're yeah. right. And then, yeah. you know, it was brought into um, education in the field right. of education. But that idea of sound bites, mm-hmm. that is not an intellectual space. And, and you know, metaphorically, I feel like curriculum has felt like sound bites instead of being like the full and expansive landscape of knowledge. Yeah. That's what you we know, away from. Yeah. The, uh, and social media doesn't help this listeners. You've certainly heard me rant about social media several times about just how we've reduced things to these snippets and these pithy little quotes and comments that really don't reflect the thoughtfulness. So Goldie, I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down. We need to be more intellectual and scholarly about what we consume, how we consume it, how we process it uh, and all of that. Let's, um, let's finish up by talking about historically responsive texts and what is, I think a very salient point Um, in the book, and that is that most children's books do not represent people of color or their experiences. And even the books that feature diverse characters, even sometimes as the protagonists, are not often written by authors of color. So is it a cultural understanding in that I, as a middle-aged white man, um, I could I could write a book featuring diverse characters, but the nuances of the culture may not be fully represented or captured or articulated in that book. Or, or is it the idea of representation in that young readers of color need to see that their stories can and should be told through the lens of the authors of color? Is it all of that? Is it more? Am I like, why is this so important? And how do schools go about, again, purposefully reconciling uh, this I guess, I suppose, challenge that we face and making sure that we have historically responsive texts in our schools? Well, the reconciliation is not really with the schools first, it's with publishing companies, you know, who they choose to publish and who's not. You know, I get the question all the time from teachers saying that, you know, is it okay or should I be selecting a book that's that's about a, a person of color in their culture? Um, but is written by a white person. And so I just simply say, you know, would you buy a cookbook that I wrote if I don't cook? <laughs> now I can research everything from a cookbook. I mean, it'd be like the best cookbook. I mean, you never know that I don't cook every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you would say to me, you typically the teacher say to me, well, it might be a better author to buy a cookbook from, right? I mean, it's almost like that. It may be a, uh, it may be pretty good. I mean, there are some books that are just bad and like they should have never written that. And then there's some books that like, you know, they honor the legacy, the genius, the joy of the culture. And they, you know, they've done some work. Um, But the problem is we don't bring in enough. We don't publish and bring in enough you know, authors of color who are steeped in the culture, who can bring in those nuances you mentioned. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of those authors, like they self-publish. So sometimes it's like, maybe we got to dig a little bit more or go beyond like traditional um, spaces, we will find texts. 
But in an, in another way, for schools, it should just be there for them. Teachers shouldn't have to dig so much. And that's why I said it's like a problem and an issue also with like publishing houses, um, which, you know, everything is reflective of society. <laughs> so when we see yeah. certain things in society, we see certain things in publishing houses. Then we see certain things in our schools, right? But what I'm pushing for, let's just call it like higher levels of culturally responsiveness to me, representation of a character or a theme or a topic that is very cultural or diverse, that's just like a basic level of CRE. I don't recommend that at all. I want representation plus pedagogy and assessment, right? Um, people think, oh, just because I have a character of color in a book, and it can be a really great book, but you still teach skills only, you still assess skills only, that's not CRE to me. That's just representation. Right. And so I want to, I'm trying to push where we have spaces in classrooms where students see themselves, they're firm, they are loved, their culture is reflected, their cultural practices. Plus we have these pursuits, right? And I recently added the pursuit of joy where we're teaching about beauty to balance that criticality and we're assessing those pursuits. See, that's right. when we have to me, and I've seen it the last 12 years, that's where we have like excellence in U.S. education. Right now we have, what do we call them? Sound bites. Right. Yeah, it is uh, the, the going beyond that sort of just representation and uh, which can really feel a little token in some respects, uh, certainly uh, those nuances and that cultural representation. And, and it really, I think a lot of it, Goldie, comes down, for me at least, I think of the word authenticity. It comes down to authentic. an authentic way that we lift culture and, and create a more expansive view in society about um, the, different, the different cultures that are represented in our community and giving them equal voice and equal representation for sure. Yes. Um, fascinating conversation, listeners. You can see why I wanted to have Goldie on the podcast for uh, many, many months. Wow. Uh, but we've got, two, uh, we've got two questions left as we finish up today. Um, and uh, these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, and the first one, you can take this in any direction uh, that you want to. It can be about what we've just talked about. It could be something else. But uh, the question is simple. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Um, two, I, I would, I would say like two things. Uh, one is like the, the problems, you know, like when you see like excellence in the 1800s and like, we are still doing things not like connected to that and, you know, reading in the news and, you know, the tragedies, the, 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 the spirits being broken, the dignity being broken of our children, the, 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 the mediocrity, all of that can, keeps me up because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I find myself thinking of like plans. I mean, I have plans outlined for the United States. I just, I, that's my mind. Like I have to yeah. create solutions or responses. And then the second thing that keeps me up is like the joy and genius of teachers I get to work with. I mean, when we come together, it's really curriculum. Like to me, curriculum is more than just lessons and units. It's like the story, it's the art that we bring to our children. And when I get into my artistic mode of curriculum development, <laughs> it's like I'm just up. And I'm I'm what when a painter will be painting, I'm painting curriculum. And so I can't stop. And, you know, I've gotten better over the years, like, you know, <laughs> like a bedtime and an alarm clock. <laughs> but um, those are the two things for sure. Yeah. Well, that keeps you up in a good way for sure. You know, it is interesting. You mentioned the problems and, 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 and we think about sometimes I look at society and I think, boy, we have come a long way. And then at the same breath, I think to myself or to myself uh, or maybe myself, I think to myself, we're still doing that. Like that is still 200 years ago and we're still wrestling with this issue. You know, it, yeah. it, it seems like we have, uh, we've, we've come a long way and yet we have simultaneously still a long way to go. Uh, last question as we finish up Goldie, uh, is about success, personal success, professional success. Again, take this in any direction you want to, but if a random person stopped you on the street and just said to you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? I would say that, you know, if you help to make this world a better place, small or large, you are successful. 
if you made the people who have elevated you, lifted you, birthed you proud. <laughs> <laughs> it could be the ancestors, your parents, your grandma, your teachers. That's success. Yeah. Like really, it's just about, I know we connect a lot of different things like awards and careers and money to success. But, you know, the the more I get to live on this earth, I, I, I realize that the, the more I am able to help someone and give and use any talents or gifts that I have to not just give to other people, but to accept and to like become smarter and to learn from humanity, that's the best um, form of success because I feel like everything else will come when you do that. You know, right. the the jobs, the awards, the success, the money, whatever, like people traditionally define, all that will come if you're making this earth a better place to live. Yeah, making the world a better place and and certainly representing those that supported you along the way. Again, we've talked uh, throughout our conversation about legacy, and that is the legacy. You yes. know, what we bring to the world is a representation of everyone who has who has supported us along along our journeys. Listeners, you can and you should definitely follow Goldie on both Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Goldie M. Uh, that is at G-H-O-L-D-Y-M. I'll have links in the show notes for both of those social media accounts. And of course, uh, the website is www.hillpedagogies.com. Uh, Goldie, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> it was a joy. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. All right, we're back with Assess That with Tom and Nat. Natalie, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Great to have you back. And uh, like most things, we've chatted a bit offline and we think hmm, that would make a good podcast. So mm -hmm. as we've been chatting a bit offline, we thought a topic this week that we might delve into is the idea of assessing competencies, 21st century competencies or 21st century learning or skills or however uh, people want to phrase that. Now, I know that in your previous school where you worked, there was not a large cohort, but there was a cohort of teachers who were embarking down the road of, you know, project-based learning, inquiry-based learning, and trying to be innovative with their instructional practices and, mm -hmm. and putting students in those positions. And of course, along with that comes the idea of assessing those competencies. So mm -hmm. I thought we could start today by just throwing it to you and saying, you know, in your work in your previous school, I know you were supporting so many of those teachers. So how did you talk to them about and how did you advise them on how to assess those 21st century competencies? <laughs> well, it actually reminds me of one story in particular that I, that I have to share because it's it's kind of funny. As these projects were happening and, and people get so excited about what it is they're going to be building or creating or doing. I often had moments where I'd be sitting in my office and someone would come run, running in and they'd be in a flurry and they'd be like, Nat, I found something that's unassessable. I've done it. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And of course, it would always be something like creativity or collaboration or one of those competencies. And so I think first and foremost um, was helping people to remember and to realize that we can assess anything if we can define it and we can describe understandable success criteria. And so that's usually where we'd have to start is what does this actually look like? Well, when you're creative, what does that look like? Let's go read something. Let's so actually starting that understanding with the teacher themselves, I think is so imperative to get to the point of bringing the students into that conversation. And this also reminds me of a conversation I had with a former colleague who's now working at Mill Bay Nature School out on Vancouver Island. And they are doing the core competency development and assessment in such a beautiful, holistic way. Um, I definitely recommend checking out their website if you're curious what that could look like uh, for from the BC Ed standpoint. Mm -hmm. But what they talk about a lot is the idea of their depth of understanding of those competencies being their lens. And that lens helps them to see that competency in action when it's happening. And then they would come back together on Friday afternoons and they would gather and talk about the evidence that they saw, the stories, and then they would basically calibrate their interpretations of where they're at in that core competency development. And I thought that was pretty beautiful. So I'd say first and foremost, kind of a long-winded answer to that question, but yeah. helping to build our own understanding of what these competencies looks like, look like are paramount. Because a lot of us going through school didn't learn about 
collaboration, like truly what it is, what does it look like? What are, what does it not look like? We didn't learn about creativity. It's pretty tough for a lot of adults to define it first and foremost, which makes them think it's something we can't assess. And I think there is like a kind of, I don't know, I know if it's a misconception or, or maybe it did come from somewhere, but I have heard from a lot of people like confidently, no, you can't assess competencies. We know that we just only students can, we just have to hand it to them. But for me, what I often hear now when people say that is, oh, you don't know what it looks like. You don't know what creativity looks like. You don't know right. what collaboration looks like. So you feel that you can't assess it. Would you agree with that? Or have you heard yeah, that Yeah, no, I, I, to I totally agree. And I think that one of the things that I've noticed, I, I do think it's that misunderstanding. And I think it's important to name it, notice it, and clarify it and define it because many of these concepts can be abstract, right? They are, mm -hmm. when you think about creative thinking, you think about critical thinking. For example, critical thinking is all over curricular standards and outcomes, but it's not called critical thinking. It's called mm -hmm. analyze. It's called hypothesize. It's called infer. It's called evaluate, critique. It's it's synthesize. It's all of those skills that you'll see in your outcomes or your standards. It doesn't name it as as critical thinking, mm -hmm. but being able to define it gives it structure and parameter that allows us to really dig dig, dig into the criteria that we establish. Uh, creativity is another one, right? What are we assessing mm -hmm. with creativity? I know one of the questions that we wrestled with for years was how do you assess creativity without stifling creativity? How do you make sure that you're not, you know, if you, if I judge something mm. to be not creative, is that going to stifle someone's mm. creativity? So by landing at a place where we talk about, and, and Cassandra, Nicole, and I've written about this, about how we assess a student's ability to think with creative intent. So it's the, it's the process of being creative. It's not the end. If we can come to terms with that, then we all know what we're looking for. And then once we have that clear definition, then we can create criteria, which allows us. So I, I completely subscribe mm. to what you are saying in that you can assess anything as long as you are <laughs> yeah. clear what you're looking for. And as long as you establish the criteria, uh, where were some of the pressure points you think for people? Like what, what is one of the, like, is it creativity? Is it collaboration? Oof. What do you think it is? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I think you're bang on with Critical thinking is already all over the curriculum. So that's like, right. that's the gateway drug of 21st century competency assessment. Right. Um, I think creativity is definitely up there. That one feels very nebulous and scary because mm -hmm. there's a lot of personal stuff going on there for people where right. they don't feel that they are creative and creativity has been kind of misconstrued as this thing that artsy people do and it lives right. over there. So people just reject it themselves. So that understanding mm -hmm. is not there. I think mm -hmm. we vastly misunderstand collaboration, but it's the one that we have the most Dunning-Kruger effect going on with right now. Do you know okay. what the Dunning-Kruger effect is? No, no so, go ahead. Yeah, it comes from a study where they did it with university students um, and have since applied this to many political leaders, um, where they had them self-report going into an exam, what they thought they would get on the exam. And without fail, those without much background knowledge or accurate background knowledge would vastly overestimate how well they thought they would do. And then the reverse was true for those that were you know, actually quite competent in the knowledge. So they proved it in all these different contexts now where people that don't have a lot of background knowledge vastly overestimate what they know. Yeah. And I think sometimes we do that with collaboration. <laughs> I think it's like happening on a widespread level where people know just enough to be dangerous. And so they are like, oh, we're collaborating and look at us collaborating as a team and look at our students yeah. collaborating. And yeah. anyone with a deeper knowledge of collaboration is like, there's no interdependence. There's right. no shared goal. Right. everyone's kind of going off and doing their own piece or even worse, one person's doing the entire thing so that everyone can get credit for their work. Mm -hmm. So that's not collaboration. Like no. that's maybe weak cooperation at best. <laughs> right. Or co being um, collegial, right? I mean, that, I mean one, of the, right, yeah. one of the things about, con you know, when I think of collaboration, if you don't as a collaborative team understand how to resolve conflict, which always yeah. arises any collaborative yeah. effort, then you're yeah. not really collaborating. The Bingo. idea that conflict will arise, how do we disagree amicably, professionally, mm -hmm. how, whether it's students or whether it's teachers, whether it's educators mm -hmm. in a faculty meeting, if we can't find a way to, to debate without it getting personal or emotional, if we can't mm -hmm. find a way to reconcile some conflict that may arise, then we're not really collaborators. No, right? we're, I mean, absolutely. we might be collaborating, but we're not really collaborators because we don't understand those roles for sure. No. And I think there's a, a problem with polite dysfunction that comes up, especially in the, <laughs> the adult spaces where yeah, people are disagreeing yeah. up here and they'll go and yeah. close the door and vent to someone about it after. Right. But that polite dysfunction that comes up in teams because people feel that's professional and that's a word that make really nice. needs someone packing. Totally. Mm -hmm. 
but it's yeah, not just, collaborating. Just, no, that's definitely not collaborating. No. You know, the other thing I want to pick up on that you said there about creativity, and and some listeners will recall me saying this last year, I, I talked a little bit about, I'm going to go on a bit of a bird walk here, but I'm going to really okay. quickly bring it back. I promise I won't be long winded. <laughs> but one of my favorite shows that used to be on TV, I don't think it's on anymore, was Songland. And it was about songwriters who would come and pitch their songs to um, producers who were trying to get a, a famous recording artist to record that song. And the end of the show, the recording artist would pick one of the songs, but they would work, three songwriters would work with each of the producers to, mm. to work the song so that the star would pick one song that they would record. Okay, so yeah. I'm watching this show. No one would argue that creating music is not incredibly creative. But what mm -hmm. struck me was how much discipline is required to write a song. Like there is structure, mm -hmm. there is predictability, there mm -hmm. is flow. So e in this realm, this is where I think we get it wrong with creativity mm -hmm. is that we think creativity is just this loose free-for-all where if you're writing a song, you're writing music, which I know nothing about, and I'm watching <laughs> this with fascination, I'm saying th this is an incredibly disciplined art. Like you have to follow the structures of a verse, a, chords, a chorus, a bridge. All yeah. terms I learned from the show, <laughs> but but <laughs> nice. the idea of the idea that creativity is just this free for all and you can't pin it down, I think is is a false assertion because when I watch that show and I watch people create music, there is structure and parameter and discipline to it. So I think one of the misunderstandings is that that you you when you assess creativity that you can't put a label on it or you can't structure it, and I just think that's wrong. I think yeah. I think that you can put it, but but for for the point about competencies, it would meet me for me to be the process, right? Mm -hmm. Of being mm -hmm. creative, not whether or not the end result is creative, but are you thinking with creative intent? How do you prepare to be creative by identifying curiosity? Mm -hmm. Do you let those ideas incubate until you have an illumination? They kind of go, you have that epiphany and you go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then you verify it, you test it, you seek out expertise mm -hmm. and say, is this a plausible solution for what we are contemplating? And then you implement it. That process hmm. of thinking with creative intent, I think can be pretty universal. So here's a question I want to ask you to nudge on that a little bit more. And it's one thing, okay. something I've been grappling with for a while now, especially with creativity, we know the impact of having that space because it activates our default network. Mm -hmm. There's so little time that teachers often have with a group of students that right. they're trying to gather evidence of something like creativity. My greatest insights usually come when I have headphones in and I'm out for a walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one else would see that. Only I would know that that evidence mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and would you suggest for people that pulling in evidence outside of the class time that the students are with you for something like creativity is an authentic and valid way to assess creativity? The short answer to that is yes, but the 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 the, the verification of it could be challenging. But I think it's I think it's the right way to go. First of all, let me back mm -hmm. up here. Your yeah. your experience with your headphones is exactly what a lot of the research points to when it comes to creativity. That we are at mm -hmm. our most creative when we are slightly distracted. Yeah. So mm -hmm. part of the challenge with creativity is if you're too focused on being creative, <laughs> you probably won't be. But it's when yeah. you're in the shower. It's when you're walking the dog or you're out for a walk. It's after a glass of wine, hey. you are slightly distracted. Wait, not so are you many. telling teachers to bring in wine to the classroom? Because that sounds like I, a, a I'm not challenge. saying, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, it's, it's when you get your, it's when you are slightly distracted, right? Yeah. So the idea that I think this is where we could tie in sort of self-regulation or metacognition mm -hmm. and having students be aware of when those epiphanies happen where when are you at your most creative because that level of self-awareness will help students be more creative you're right about the time because mm -hmm. that's always when i talk to teachers and groups and workshops and stuff about assessing creative thinking it's always that incubation period right mm -hmm. it's it's okay let this idea marinate but i want your idea by monday that that's the challenge because totally. we don't have the time to let those ideas kind of bubble up but i think accessing mm -hmm accessing the information from students, helping them become more self-aware uh, and recognizing metacognitively, when am I at my most creative? Under what conditions do my ideas flow? What do I need to be at my most innovative? I think totally. that's a really good point to bring up. And I think it's something we should try to access as teachers. Absolutely. And you mentioned self-regulation, but I feel like that's the other of the competencies. Um, mm -hmm. That one that's really about learning how to learn that 
we need to be creating the conditions for students to know what to look for. And we have the lens to recognize that, ooh, this is, they're on the pathway towards true self-regulation or not. Yeah. Um, so that's the one I would say it's very similar to creativity and you have to create that space for them to share that narrative and that story of this is what happened for me. But then just to circle back to the beginning, making sure you have that correct understanding of, oh, this is something that does actually breed great creative thinking or does breed success with self-regulation versus something that doesn't. So you can have a bit of that discernment. But for me, with mm -hmm. self-regulation, I'm a, a fan of Zimmerman's work. And I really like, you know, the three-phase mm -hmm. model, forethought and planning, monitoring and reflection. And it's actually been really aligned with a lot of my own personal learning the past couple of years. The, when we have a goal, forethought and planning is all about having a goal in mind that you want to achieve. The biggest barrier to achieving that goal is our own limiting beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've, we talk about mindset a lot. We say that, but until you really put yourself out there with some audacious goal as an adult that you want to go after, do you yeah. start to feel how terrifying it is to have that voice in your head say, why would anyone want to listen to you? What value do you have to offer? Now it's already mm -hmm. been done before. Don't bother. Like it's always there and telling yeah. that story of this was the goal and then watching for things like, oh, I was going to do this project, but then that partner of mine's really crappy. And so I couldn't do it. Like we all do that. We blame others when the problem is up here and how we're limiting ourselves. And so then we project those limiting beliefs on others to make the problem out there. So we don't have to deal with the real problem mm -hmm. that's stopping us from getting to the goal. And I think that type of evidence, like if we can better understand that, A, we'll all be more mentally well. And I think that's mm -hmm. something we're all craving in education right now. Right. B, we can actually be equipped to help hear those stories and have that conversation with students in a way that we can use that really high level feedback and coach them towards challenging those limiting beliefs. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, on the Zimmerman model, because uh, the way it aligns with the assessment cycle. So bringing it back mm -hmm. to assessment, when we talk about student investment, we often talk about this idea uh, of, of assessment and self-regulation engaging in a symbiotic relationship. So if you think about the three phases that you mentioned, Zimmerman, the forethought phase, the, the performance phase, or the monitoring phase, and then there's the third phase, which is a reflection phase, mm -hmm. they align perfectly with those three questions that Roy Sadler articulated way back in 1989, yep. which was, you know, where am I going? Where am I now? How do I close the gap? So the big point here as we finish up our time together mm -hmm. is this idea that the forethought phase aligns perfectly with the question, where am I going? What is my learning goal? Now I set goals. So the big picture here is I can use assessment to help students become more self-regulatory about their learning. Where am I now aligns with the performance of the monitoring phase, right? How mm -hmm. do I close the gap aligns perfectly with the reflection phase. And so you can use assessment to as an input to help students become more self-regulatory about their learning. Yeah. But on the reverse, the symbiotic relationship is that as I help students become more metacognitive, their assessment results begin to increase. They start to show improvement uh, with their skills mm -hmm. and capacity. So I think that's that's really good advice. Any last, last before we finish up, Nat, any last advice for teachers uh -huh. out there feeling that assessing competencies is somewhat of a daunting prospect? Um, yeah. What advice would you give to teachers who are saying, like, how do I do this, Nat? How do I start? I feel like we didn't maybe say this as overtly as maybe we should have, but this is where that triangulation of evidence becomes so important. Like Ann Davies talks about mm -hmm. product. We're all used to that, but then really pulling in the conversation and the observation is so important. And if right. all the stories and the examples that we talked about today weren't enough, like really reflecting on just doing your own experience of collaboration or creativity, how important what it is you do and the conversations you have are to that process starts yeah. to really challenge us to remember that we have to move beyond product when we're talking about competencies. Absolutely love that. I think that's a great place to finish up today because triangulation does not have to mean three stapled packets of paper. <laughs> it's opening up our minds to what is quality evidence and what can I observe the reflections yeah. that students have, all of that. So uh, yeah. our time is up, Nat. Uh, thanks for being here today. Uh, always, always a great conversation. We'll talk next time. Sounds good. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If you've got questions for Natalie and I on Assess That this summer, 
Or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast, I would love to hear from you. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events coming this fall. The next episode will be Monday, August 1st. That'll be in two weeks, where my guest will be Nathan Weir. Nathan is the co-author, along with Matt Townsley. And of course, some of you will recall that Matt's been on the podcast. So Nathan and Matt co-authored the book, Making Grades Matter, Standards-Based Grading in a Secondary PLC at Work. So Nathan and I are clearly going to talk about grading reform. And it may be a good time, beginning of August, as you're getting ready to mentally and or physically get back to work Uh, to start thinking about your grading practices, assessment practices, and all of that. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Happy summer, everyone.